What number is this, Chip? Episode 100. This is Michael Nesmith, and you are listening to Zilch. Yeah, this is actually happening. <laughs> okay, no, I mean, don't get excited, man. It's because I'm short. Zilch. Zilch. You're listening to Zilch, a monkey's podcast. Michael, how are you? Good, Ken. Nice to see you. Good to see you as well. Were there any questions that you did not want to discuss? No. Let's uh, let's rock and roll. All right, let's rock and roll. <laughs> <clears throat> no, I'm all set for you. I've got my best Sunday hat on and my uh, dressed-up shoes, and I'm ready to go. Ladies and gentlemen, here we are. We've got a monkey on board, and... <laughs> A tremendous author and man about town and tremendous talent, Michael Nesmith. Welcome to Zilch. Thanks, Ken. Nice to be here. It is excellent to have you. You've been on our bucket list, obviously. Uh, There are a lot of people out there that love you. That's nice to hear. I'm glad to be part of the team. Does it ever seem weird that that there is so much love for all you guys? Well, weird is not the right word, is it? uh, But it's... uh, uh, there, there, there's really nothing to explain it, so I don't know where it would fit. It's gratifying, mm-hmm. and I'm grateful for it, and I, I return the affection. But the magnitude of it has always been kind of a surprise to me. Yeah, that's probably the best word for it is surprise. So, Michael, you've recently put out Infinite Tuesday. What made you realize that this was the time to do it? I think it was as much just finding some traction for publication as it was anything else. Uh-huh. The uh, the book came about over a couple of years of writing, and uh, I started writing it back um, probably 14, I think, 14, 13, and um, had been putting together a paragraph here and there even for a few years before that. But it never did gel until I had a publisher and an editor who just was taken with the book as it was written. I had finished the book, but clearly it needed to go through the editorial process. Uh-huh. And so this editor at the Random House uh, was just a terrific help. His name's Kevin Doughton. Uh, he basically taught me how to write the thing. I told him what I was swinging at, and he knew immediately what I was swinging at. And so we just wrestled it to the ground, as the metaphor goes. And um, that happened to be, you know, release in 2017. Uh, it took a couple of years of editing well, that that means 15 and 16, and then it rolled out in 17. Well, I really enjoyed the book myself. Uh, it it I honestly didn't know what to expect going in. You know what I'm saying? You, you never know. Well, it's like anything. You can't judge a book by the cover, right? right. But uh, <laughs> but as I was going into the book, I I wasn't sure what to expect. Was this going to be the big tell-all? Was this going to be this, that, or the other thing? And what it really was was incredibly entertaining and informative in many different ways that a lot of people might not you know, be ready for right at the time. But uh, there there are a couple, two very interesting concepts that you use to frame the book. 
One of them is high lonesome and the other is Amarcord. Could you please define those two things and what they're all about? Sure. Well, uh, let's start with Amarcord. Uh, Amarcord is a is a uh, is Italian, but it's it's from an Italian uh, dialect, uh, and I'm not exactly sure um, how to pronounce the dial dialect. It's it's like mm-hmm. Iricordi or Ilricordi or something like that, and it's and it's um it's not widely spoken, so it's not a it's not a word that you're liable to hear on the streets of Rome, for instance. But <clears throat> when Fellini used it to describe a movie that he made and titled a movie, it got my attention. So I did a little bit of research on it, and it went into my lexicon as a really important uh, notion. Uh, the, uh, the improper translation of it is, is something like mi ricordo or mi ricorde, which, which means I remember. Uh-huh. And so I use that as as the definition of it for the uh, English speakers and people who don't speak Italian. But that doesn't that doesn't do the word justice because what it basically means is more spiritual and more metaphysical than that. Uh-huh. It's the um, it's something like the remnants of one's uh, memories, the life of one's memories, and how they fit together in the present tense. And in order for that to work, you have to have a have a, a a limit, a kind of structure to it. And the structure would be differentials. It would be um, a, a derivation of one idea to another. So I start off. I start that off. I start the book off with priorities. With Tim Leary, I'm talking to Tim Leary, and it was a it was an interesting lunch. And he he said, like he did so many times, something kind of startling to me. I said, what were your priorities as a kid? And he said, well, same. Uh, I started setting my priorities when I was in high school, and, and they were the same as they are to all kids. You know, how, how do I look? Uh-huh. And what do other people think of me? And I thought, well, they, this is a guy who basically changed the way, you know, the Americans thought about uh, uh, existence. And so for those to be his priorities, those were my priorities. How do I look? What do people think of me? You know, like I say in the book, uh, vanity, thy name is teenager. (laughs) So that was the, those were the two points that I married and tried to um, describe the difference in and to contrast with each other. And what I wanted to do was to contrast those sorts of points through various chapters in my life where um, I, I ran into differences with other people, not differences in a, in a collision or a warlike way, but just differences uh-huh. in noticing the contrast between the way I did something or thought about something and the way it actually was or other people thought about it. And take that and develop it up into uh, how that had gone to describe and define the existence I was in at the time. Uh-huh. But I knew that I wouldn't be able to do that with any degree of accuracy. I wouldn't be able to say, you know, this person drove up in in this particular vehicle at this particular time and place with these particular variations. I wasn't going to be able to do that because I don't remember them. I'm not even sure a lot of them. <laughs> Makes me laugh, but I'm not even sure a lot of the book even happened. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I suppose it did because people have told me. But you know, it's like Mick says in in uh, in his song. I was told I had a good time. Yeah. And, exactly. And the um. So having those those points to describe and to contrast and compare and say, you know, uh, here was the formation 
of a new band, of something new in my life, and this is how it happened, became the focal point of the book. And to my great everlasting good fortune, Kevin Doughton over at Random House got it instantly. He said, I've been waiting for this book. In fact, Kevin said he got off of the train he was on to get to a, a phone, because, to get someplace where his phone would work, so he could call my agent and say, I want this book and I want it before anybody else. And they made me a great offer and have done an incredible job for me, I think. And he completely got what the idea of it was. It was originally titled Listen to the Band, but Kevin and his minions said, you know, that sounds too much like an old uh, rock star doing his memoirs, and what uh -huh. you want is something different. So they came up with Infinite Tuesday, which they pulled out of the book itself. And they pulled it from the Amarcord of uh, Douglas Adams <clears throat> having his life changed by a Paul Kroom cartoon. Yes. Uh, which was, uh, I keep thinking it's Tuesday. And <laughs> that same cartoon changing my life. And so it went from there. I didn't spend a whole lot of time on any one particular subject, although I think the most was the the large spiritual transition that happened in my life that happened at the same time it was happening in everybody else's, mm -hmm. which was, you know, the 60s yes. and, uh, and uh, the uh, psychedelics and all the stuff that we were going through at that point. But <clears throat> I just didn't, didn't want to just, first of all, it wasn't a tell-all. I didn't want to embarrass anybody. There were a lot of people that just left out of the book, members of my family and so forth, and there were people that, that it, it just didn't make any sense to develop much more than a sentence or two. And... Um, so that was where Amarcord fit. The, uh, the one great contrast that I think most of us share is the contrast between our normal waking state and our happy hours and skipping along on the beach uh -huh. and what I call and have, were, was taught to call a state of mind called high lonesome. Yes. And high lonesome is a term that you hear sometimes bandied about by country music players, country music writers. It's a, um, it's a. Well, you know, if you if you'd like, I can read it to you from the book, or if that's going to oh, be yeah. too long. No, please go right ahead. This is your show. <laughs> uh uh. <laughs> but I'll, <clears throat> but I'll I'll read it. Let me read it. It's what is it? It's two par three paragraphs. Uh, and it and it. <clears throat> here we go. From Infinite Tuesday. Deep in the bowels of sorrow and the songs of the hard laboring, slow growing, painful life that is mortality, there is embedded a concept shared among country and blues writers and musicians called high lonesome. These two words describe the deepest pain experienced in this life, a pain so intense that to merely describe it is to experience it in some degree. This high lonesome is beyond the reach of anything the human senses know. It cannot be seen, heard, or felt physically. It's accessed only through the heart and soul. It is the essence of loss. Lost love, lost chances, lost life, and nothing is ever sadder or more difficult to bear. It is wanting to love, feeling the need to love, deep and real, and having no place for it. It is affection, pure and sweet, with no one to receive it, no one to know it, no one to give it to or share it with. So this feeling sits and wails like a lost child in a desert, nothing for miles in any direction but its own sorrowful sound, a cry not for food or shelter or power or money. This sadness cannot be assuaged by any finite element. High lonesome has been the unknown and unintended theme 
of my life, even when my life looked to an outsider like an example of great success. Buried within the life of all mortals is one resounding and echoing heartbreak after another, one despairing moment repeating and repeating, even if it is unrecognized. High lonesome is the feeling that accompanies it and is the purest blue the mind can paint. So that's the definition of high lonesome as I write it in my book, and that's what I contrasted between the good times and high lonesome, which are the bad times. And I'll How's tell that? you, Michael, that that is fantastic. If if anybody's on the fence about getting this book, this is exactly why you need to pick it up. Whether you're just a monkeys fan or whether you followed Michael throughout his career or or casual fan, this is this is the kind of insight that you're going to get in Infinite Tuesday. Now, Michael, you have uh, the Chiller appearance coming up in October 27th and 29th. Are you excited about that? I am. You know, you know, I I always said no to these invitations and Jody Ritson just pushed and pushed and pushed and she said if you'll ever do it you're going to love it uh-huh. uh, because it's such a, a different thing than you believe you know the press has put it out as a uh, as old codgers going up and you know making one last autograph for a hundred bucks so I thought well that's terrible <laughs> I don't want to do that I don't want to do that to the fans and I don't want to do it to myself but Jody, Jody held one of these a kind of monkeys convention and I went to it uh-huh. When I went up to play in a monkeys conference, you know, five years ago or something like that. Yeah. And it was just what she said. It was a gas. It was so deeply felt and deeply emotional. And even though it was built around this kind of collection uh, mentality, by that I mean that collectors come to these yes. events in order to get provenance for something they've collected. Even if it's just an autograph to them or just a validation that what they have is a genuine article uh-huh. it's uh, it's a moment where it validates not necessarily the cultural or aesthetic worth of what they have but the emotional and spiritual worth there are people you know whose whose interaction with the monkeys and by that I mean the television show and coming home and being with their families and watching the show and uh, or, or binge watching it or however they did it uh-huh. meant meant a lot so just to have something signed meant, means a lot well I find out that this kind of goes across all uh, barriers and rivers. The, the it's not just the monkeys. It's uh, it's any place there are collectors. It's any place people have these odd, very affecting kind of lives. My, I was a I was a single kid, and so when I came home, when we got a television, what I did when I came home from school was watch Art Linkletter's house party. Yeah, and I can remember what meeting Art Linkletter one time and just uh, being thrilled and having the, the most extraordinary effect on me. And so I, I wondered about that for a long time. And then I decided after I went to this one that Jody had um, put together and it had advanced that feeling that I had about Art Linkletter's house party. And then I, I, I did another couple of them and they were just wonderful. I just had the best time. You know, I would dress up in costumes and pose for pictures and do the stuff that the, the fans wanted that I thought, well, I'm going to do one of these a year as long as they go. Well, as long as they go, I mean, they just get bigger every year. I mean, there are yeah. hundreds of thousands of people that go to some of the big flagships of these. So <clears throat> this one that I'm doing, I'm doing it with Jody and um, uh, Steve, the agent for it. Uh-huh. And I'll just go in and stay a day and, you know, sign everything I can sign and 
and uh, take all the pictures people want and then move along. And that one is, when did you say it was? The 22nd or 27th it is the, of uh, October? Yes, October 27th through the 29th. Cool. Where is it? It's in Parsippany, right? Yes. Great. So come on out and see Mike at the Chiller appearance. It's going to be fantastic. Jody will take care of you. And she's also got some special things that she can get autographed for you in case you can't make it. Details coming soon. Yeah. Now, in your book, you know, uh, I was talking to a gentleman recently, and and, and he was a, a black fellow, and, and I mentioned that because he said that when he tells people that he loves the monkeys, that sometimes they look at him like, well, you, you don't fit the demographic or whatever. But he said that when the monkeys were on TV, that was the time that his family would all gather around and laugh. And he told me <clears throat> if I ever talked to you that he wanted me to thank you. And that that just seemed like such a beautiful thing, just a beautiful memory in, in, a, in a way that you might not even realize that you touched someone's life. You know, all of you, and, and when I say all of you, I mean everybody from Bert and Bob to everybody who was a key grip or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Everybody yeah. on, involved. Mm -hmm. But Well, I understand what you're saying, and it's uh, it's not the only time. Do you tell him you're welcome if you see him? <laughs> I will. And, I will. and um, Or he's welcome, or she's welcome. And the... Uh, I, I encounter that um, all the time. That's what I'm talking about. There's a you know there's a feeling that people have who are who love the monkeys who uh, love them for for something uh, special in their life around mm -hmm. that time. You know, like families laughing together or or meals together or a concert night or something. And it's hard. It, it, there's no telling why it happens. Some things and not others. But mm -hmm. that it, that it happened with the monkeys is uh, undeniable. Yeah. And in a way, that's their own Americord, if you will, the, how how they remember it. Yeah, and not to not to um, not to contradict you, but the word is Americord. Oh, sorry. Okay. That's okay. Just uh, you know, cleaning up the room. <laughs> no, please do so. Um, Americord. So thank you very much. And now I'd like to play a track off of, and the hits just keep coming. Michael Nesmith's fifth solo album. And here we are with one of my favorite tracks, "Tomorrow and Me." forgotten how long I've been sitting here Watching my reflection in a disappearing beer The loneliness is so thick You can slice it The emptiness is too much for me to fight it And while tomorrow must be met It seems that life's become a jewel That dimly gleams from its perch Atop a ring that's slightly out of brown Casting the reflection of a crying cloud Oh, the closeness is gone Still the memory lives on The distance now is growing as the highway sings Changing the complexion and the scheme of things And as the world begins to turn I feel the time has come To accept apparent loss as a battle won And with that in mind I close my eyes and kiss your cheek Push the loneliness aside and stand on shaky feet 
and re-implant the smile that never really leaves. Gently place my heart back on my sleeve. Oh, the closeness is gone. Still, the memory lives personal here, but in your book you talk about being raised by your mother. I too was raised around a very strong woman and with male parental figures that were kind of almost invisible. They were visible in how they weren't there, you know what I'm saying? And in some ways it shaped me and how I relate to men and women, and it was kind of hard for me to trust men you know, them not being there as I was growing up. It also seemed to enhance my respect for women. Do you feel that this dynamic affected your life in any certain way that you were raised by your mother? Oh, undoubtedly. I mean, um, I, apropos cleaning up the room, the, the, the difference is not so much between men and women. The difference uh -huh. is between male and female. Yes. All, <clears throat> all species have uh, gender, and it just is what it is. You know, a, a rose has a gender and flowers uh -huh. and and uh, there's a there's even a neutral gender um, so uh, over time d this concept of uh, the feminine and the masculine the male and the female the man and the woman is has has settled in and unfortunately in some areas uh, some racist or or feminist or or uh, uh, chauvinist areas it's settled in uh, to indicate something that it doesn't indicate Mm -hmm. um, it, it indicates like something's better than the other, but it's not. It's not. <clears throat> what my mother taught me were um, aspects of courage and um, and uh, honor and being um, uh, clear and and uh, straightforward. 
that <clears throat> were very hard for a woman, a female, to do on her own in the South in the 50s. Mm -hmm. uh, th th there was a, an expectation that a woman would keep the house and stay out of these philosophical ideas like a wrong and right and good and evil and so forth, except as they might express it in their love for their children or for their, their family. But my mother understood this because of Christian science, the religion that she practiced or, and this uh, science that she studied. Uh, that was much more to do with the substance of life itself. Mm. So she understood the importance of it, and she taught it to me. But she taught it to me from a feminine standpoint. So <clears throat> it was the feminine standpoint that nourished me so much about it and her expression of it. She expressed it beautifully. She was a beautiful woman, and she expressed it with, with great aesthetic pleasure. She was an artist. Uh, she had, and it and it it raised in me a poetic consciousness, a poet's sense of my language, a poet's sense of uh, my friends, and so forth. And the fact that it was feminine had very little to do with the substance of these uh, fundamental ideas. Uh -huh. <clears throat> so I suspect that if you'll uh, dig around in your own thinking, you'll find out that you and I share that. Uh, it's a uh, it's something that that women bring to the party. But it's not because they're women. It's because of the value of the ideas. And men can bring it just as, uh, yes. just as powerfully as, as a woman can. I had my, in, my, in Infinitusi, I talk about my Uncle Chick, who was really enigmatic as far as he some of these like ideas are concerned. A, a really fun character. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in your book, you talk about something called celebrity psychosis. Do you still suffer from that? I hope not. I mean, I'm, I've learned to, I've learned to identify it when it hits. Um, you know, the idea of it. <clears throat> clearly, it's not a, you know, a disease of the American Psychiatric Institute. It's just a joke, <laughs> and it's just it's a riff. It's what it is basically. Yeah. It's just one of those things that plays over the top of the, of the landscape we're driving on. And um, it's um, it once you identify it, once it is identified in your life, if you think of it and you can see it operating, and you've got some sort of investment in it that goes to your self-worth or the worth that you think other people have about you, then you realize, oh, this is psychotic. This is delusional. And it can be everything from the president of the United States to the principal of your high school. Uh -huh. It can be whatever you, wherever you find it, or most horrifyingly, in your own internal notions about yourself and and who you are. But once you see it, then it can't get you anymore because it's like once you see the illusion, it's never an illusion again. Very good. Now, you've written fiction and created worlds in your fictional works. How was writing Infinite Tuesday similar or different to that form of writing? Well, there's a, that's a huge question, really, mm -hmm. Ken. It's, it's, it's not, I don't think I can give you a, a, a succinct answer to it. Because in, in writing Infinite Tuesday, I was, I was contrasting and comparing metaphors. Yes. So when you do that, you move into the realm of the infinite. Metaphors are infinite. And because they are infinite, they become very good at you know, describing barriers. It's one of the odd, it's not a paradox, but it's an odd feature of infinity. Is that how, how carefully it can draw a line. Uh. So... In poems and in love songs and in just whatever 
you might use writing and words and lexicon for, there's, they, they apply themselves differently in every way. And I, I think to, to give you any more of an answer than I just have, I, I would do a disservice to, uh, you know, how, how big this question really is, because it is by these words uh -huh. that we create our world. And so in those words and in those ideas where we find the words that uh, develop the... Well, what, um, what Terence McKenna says, which is an interesting way of putting it, is the felt presence of the immediate moment. Wow. That whatever happens right now in the minute that you and I are talking or the minute I'm watching Hendrix on stage or in the minute that Mick and I are, are goofing around... Uh -huh. um, that's a felt presence of the immediate moment. And those are described differently by everybody who's involved in it. And it's described according to the way their life is. So it's just, uh, you know, it's, <laughs> it's really, <laughs> I, it's out of reach for me to answer you any more precisely than that. Well, it's still a great answer nonetheless. You know, it's like it's uh, what's what the old Celtic saying, poetry is made at the edge of running water. Mm. That's beautiful. You know, I was speaking to some people this weekend, and I was trying to tell them that we we can all create with our words. Every, every time we, we choose to speak, or even when we choose not to speak, the, the, the power of the word, you, you have such a great grasp of that. It's it's more an observation than a question, but seriously, it's it's something that I appreciate about you, whether it's in your lyrics or in your, your writing or, or what, even just in this conversation. Well, thanks. I mean, let me point out very quickly that it's not unique. No, and it's no. and it's not exclusive. So it's it's it's, it's open to everyone. Yeah, everybody does that. Yeah, good. absolutely. Now, what did you learn about yourself in the journey of writing this book? And will there be a follow-up? You know, like Unlimited Wednesdays. Well, it's it's uh, it, it won't be Unlimited <laughs> Wednesday, but but it's um, you know, writing is my first craft. And what I mean by that is that was a thing I was able to do without being taught. Uh, I could sit down, use the language that I was given, and create something with it without any, any instruction at all. And I did it better or worse depending on the mood I was in and, and whether I was angry or sad or whether it was high lonesome or, you know, heavenly strains. It was a, uh, uh, a basic that I knew that, that, that words were part of the music of life and that that, that was that was what uh, what defined uh -huh. my experiences and so I, I feel as if there is a um, a point of departure in writing that informs everything that I do uh -huh. and I've, I've never it's never changed so it doesn't make any difference what I'm doing it always comes back to the word to the logos and and from there uh, the world I live in manifests. I'll submit to you that the world we all live in manifests from this same plane, uh -huh. and that once that manifest plane starts to expand with higher and higher use of the ideas of existence, then it becomes a good time. It becomes, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm stuttering because I'm trying to avoid the theological phrases like heaven, right. but it becomes heaven. Yeah. Makes perfect sense. And now off of 1970's Magnetic South, it's Michael Nesmith with Joanne, a song that reached number 21 on the Billboard Singles Charts and number 6 on the Adult Contemporary Charts.
talk about you received affirmation from audiences for your songs like Nine Times Blue, Different Drum, Papa Jean's Blues, and last year's Good Times garnered accolades from music press and industry alike. Have you been struck with the similarities between these experiences and what has felt different between them? Well, they're quite different. Um, Good Times is a record and, mm-hmm. and it's a craft and it's, a, it's an object that's been crafted and it's, a, and it's, a, it's like a house. You build it with many, many people and many, many skill sets. Uh-huh. They, uh, the songs, the ones that you mentioned, uh, which are the four that I played at a Troubadour yes. concert that I describe in the book, were very personal and they were unique and they were, uh, uh, they were just me standing in front of an audience. What happened during that time 
was that I played the first song and I got a good round of applause, a, a great round of applause, because that can go either way on the first number. You know, it can be lackluster and scare you, or it can be encouraging and, and encourage you uh, to move to the next level. It was a good round of applause. I sang the next song, and the first that's the first time that this event, this next event happened to me, which was, uh, you know, the felt moment, uh-huh. the, uh, the, the, the felt presence. It was more applause than the first song, and I'd never experienced that before. The third song came down. The, the house was just crazy with yells and, and, um, and um, applause and screams for more and so on and so forth. I'd never experienced anything like that. I didn't know what that was about until I played the last song, which is the only song I'd come prepared to sing. So I couldn't play any more than that. My show was basically <laughs> over at the end of that 12 minutes or however long it was. And so I said thank you and, and left. But, but it, was, it, was, it was so much of an increase from its initial stages. And, I, and that was what I had really come to love about the creative environment and the creative experience, mm-hmm. is that it infinitely... Accelerating. It's a it's a it's a constant um, uh, acceleration uh, toward infinity. That, you know, there's actually a there's actually a new universal law that's been discovered called omega, and yes. it, it points to this this endless acceleration toward infinity. And that that I, did not happen in good times. Uh, I don't know that they can necessarily in a recording, uh-huh. especially since so many people are involved in it. But it's nonetheless gratifying. I mean, you know, it's it's a it's a thrill to have uh, that kind of uh, approbation and encouragement. So, but they're very different, very very different. Yes, for the monkeys to get that kind of love, uh, especially on Monkey's record, to get that kind of love in 2016 and 2017. It had to be very interesting, you know, because there's been times when the monkeys have been written off as this or written off as that or however, whatever the critic thought the monkeys were or, you know, however they defined them. But when you see articles in Rolling Stone and all these other places, people that at one time would have written the concept of an album from you guys just off without even listening to it to now glowing praise coming your way, how did that feel? Well, I, it it was like I say, it was gratifying. Mm-hmm. I, I don't I don't think of it as an anomaly. Right. You know, the monkeys' uh, launch on television just confused everybody. Yeah. No, nope, I don't mean necessarily the fans. The fans weren't confused, but the producers were, and uh, and I, and the, and the actors were. Me being one of them, and speaking, you know, with uh, uh, <laughs> speaking from experience, and um, I, that was. That was a very unusual kind of, uh, uh, what do I want to say, advent, genesis. It, was, it started in a way that nobody really qu- quite understood. Uh-huh. It was like, what in the world is this thing? So it was really hard to say, you know, you say, oh, he has beautiful hair. Oh, they have, um, they have a real knack for numbers. But you don't very seldom hear that from a parent saying, oh, look, they can travel faster than the speed of light. I mean, it's just, you know, it's way off the scale at that point. Right. So I, that's that's kind of what it was for me. It just, I didn't have a measure for it. You don't have a measure for those things. Right. I don't. 
Well, it, it's also weird because we, we have people in lanes. It's like we assign people lanes. For example, if you're a, a comic, that's all you should ever be able to do, and then you wind up winning an Oscar in a breakthrough dramatic role, right? But we always do that. We always define this is what this is in entertainment or this is this in, in society, and the monkeys really did challenge those lanes. Yeah. Well, I mean, the whole lane thing, of course, is absurd on the face of it. Yeah, absolutely. But, but I, I take your point, and you're right. And and uh, but it, with television, television was a technology that was just um, part of the symbolic logic, where that's the same for human machines as it is for linguistic structures, and so. Nobody quite understood that that was pouring off of the television set and that in their living room something was coming to life that nobody had any idea of. Right. And in time, we've looked back on that and we go, oh, yeah, that actually, that actually happened to me. My family came together and we all laughed and it created something new, etc. Because it's, it's very, very simple in retrospect and especially under Amarcourt. But what, that's what it was and so it's very hard to measure. You just can't. You can't measure those things. You can describe them and get the use of them and start to see them as they occur in other places. But it's very hard to measure because you really don't have anything to measure it against. Very good. I'd like to kind of shift a little bit. And, of course, it all has everything to do with one another, everything we're going to be talking about, everything ties together. But I'd like to ask you a couple questions about the monkey's music, if possible. Sure. Around the time of the Just Us album, 1996, you and the other monkeys did a TV reunion of the monkeys, a lizard sunning itself on the rock, a.k.a. Hey, hey, it's the monkeys. Do you think that we will ever get to see that given a proper release on physical media? I do. I, I don't exactly know how it would happen. Most of, you know, <clears throat> Ward Sylvester's passed. Uh-huh. Uh, there's a lot of people who've gone now that had had to do with it that, the, the monkeys own it, which means David's estate, me, Mickey, and Peter. Mm-hmm. We could put it out. Uh, I have a, I believe I have a master copy of it. There's not a lot of traction for it, but uh, it, it exists in a form where if there ever was, it could, it could come out. I can, you know, I plan on putting a, some little snippets out like I do on my channel, on the YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can, you can laugh at the lizard sunning itself on a rock, but that's... Uh, that's as far as I want to take it w- without having, you know, a real discussion with the guys. Right, absolutely. Now, you mentioned your YouTube channel. <clears throat> this is this is a very cool thing because you've you've invaded YouTube. Would you tell us about how you've made your channel? <laughs> well, again, don't call it an invasion. <laughs> well, I guess you can if it's... <laughs> Hyperbole works. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's... Uh, I've held off putting stuff up in YouTube for years. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, I have it all from the 80s and, that I did and, and a bunch since then. And, and uh, I just didn't do it because I didn't want to invade people's privacy. I didn't want to, I didn't want to uh, examine the rights. I just, there's a bunch of reasons not to. But then now that all of that is kind of a wash on the uh-huh. beach somewhere, yeah. uh, I feel like it's okay to just go ahead. I've got the rights to all the things that I put up. And so I thought, well, this seems to be the medium, and these little short clips seem to be the lingua franca, so now's the time. So that was it, and I just started a channel. I hired um, uh, a a young uh, woman who uh, has her 
a lit degree from Berkeley and has a real understanding of the net and is a real music and uh, kind of a, a fan and, and, you know, understands the whole dynamic of the world that I live in to come and put the channel together. I think she's doing a good job. So I we'll just let so her, too. I'm, just gonna, I'm gonna let her rock and roll as long as she will. Really, YouTube has become its own TV network and it's whatever the person who's viewing it wants it to be. That's right. And exactly. it's, it's, a, it's an absolutely amazing thing that was un, unthinkable at one point. But like mm -hmm. people will say, we want our MTV back. And I'm like, it's there, <laughs> just yeah. make it. You just, but people just seem program. to want to have commercials and be told what's coming up in the next 15 minutes. So, <laughs> but real life isn't like that. You don't always get to know what's coming up in the next 15 minutes. I'd like to ask you about one of my favorite songs that you uh, helped create and came from you, Sunny Girlfriend. Such a great song. Uh, to me, it's, I, I just love it. I, I, can't, I, I can't thank you enough for this, this track. It's, it's been through with me through all my life. Great, um, thanks. The, Sunny Girlfriend has been interpreted to have a few different meanings. What inspired the song and what does it mean to you? Well, it, uh, <laughs> it it doesn't have any meanings to of, of any depth. Um, the uh, uh, the sunny girlfriend is a phrase that doesn't really attach itself to anything that was used to describe uh, an upper uh, a pill like um, in the '60s. Uh -huh. I don't know what they were. They were like uh, um, you know I don't, I don't know. Do you, were, uh, I was, I'm about to say amphetamines, but that's yeah. not what they were. But they, they, were they were ups. They were uppers, uh, pops. Kind of uppers, yeah. yeah, like that. And it was used for that. Uh, people uh, would talk about, let's take a sunny girlfriend and go watch a show and stay up all night. This was they were, It was used instead of, uh, of uh, cocaine and, mm -hmm. and, and the other uh, neurological stimulants. Mm -hmm. And I thought, that's an interesting phrase, sunny girlfriend. It would be cool to have, what would a sunny girlfriend be like? So I just wrote up the description of a sunny girlfriend, but who was an who was an actual physical thing. You know, she's uh -huh. my sunny girlfriend, and, and that she would uh, have her own self worth, owning and operating her own self worth, and that uh, she and so forth. And the lyrics came together around that, and then uh, it was a fun song for the uh, band to play. You know, the three of us and and David to play. So that's all there was to it. It was just sim a, a simple pop song. It was, you know finding its way forward and um, had come at a particularly good time. You know, I was back from London by then. I had watched the way the bands were working. I was back mm -hmm. um, that we had a lot of power in the television show at the time. So mm -hmm. I'm glad it resonates with you. It's a, it's, and it's a lot of fun uh, to play uh, in live, too. Well, I'd like to play one of my favorite versions of Sunny Girlfriend. This is from Rhino's Headquarters Sessions, the acoustic remix with the master vocals. Check it out. Love this version. She owns and operates her own sunshine factory Her painting smiles on dolls and then on me She's my sunny girlfriend and personality Well, she's got a book that tells about everybody's past And she can make 
kind of give you an idea. I don't want to burden you with my interpretation of it, but <laughs> when I was listening well, to it, it... You won't, you won't, Ken, because it's probably wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it, to me, when, when I was a, a, a kid hearing it, and I'm saying eight or ten, it seemed like it was about a nice girl to hang out with. Mm-hmm, then as I, I got, then I got into uh, dating and whatnot, it became trying to find that special one, and one that, that was really cool, and then Later, you're just trying to figure yourself out, and it has a certain air of mystery, you know. What does it mean? Uh-huh. She's uh, painting smiles on dolls and then on me. So it was to me, it was always about a literal woman, you know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so it's, well, it was. Yeah, it, it wasn't. A, it was a. It was a virtual woman, but it. But she literally was there. Absolutely. And yeah, well, I, good work. And, and and thank God I've run into several of them. It's, it's been good. <laughs> good for you. <laughs> Now, I'd like to talk a bit about 2016 Good Times, such an excellent album. I'd like to talk to you about the song Mia Magdalena.
fan favorite and it garnered the attention of critics and folks alike from Rolling Stone magazine. Uh, can, can you please explain your involvement in it and how it became a ballad for you and Mickey to sing? Uh, well, it was it was virtually uh, zero. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't really uh, uh, have anything to do with the The whole uh, Good Times thing uh, started because uh, of uh, Andrew Sandoval saying, you know, we could we could probably do this, uh-huh. and it would be uh, it would be a good uh, be be well received. When I heard it, I thought this would be good, and, I, and when I heard it, I thought Mickey and I should record it together, and uh-huh. that was about all I said. I said, Mickey, you want to do this together, and then then we rehearsed it so we could play it on stage. That was fun, and uh, it had it had, it's had the life pretty pretty uh, uh, ordinary linear life of a of a pop song i mean it's it's a pre-song ben's a good writer and and uh i like do you like death cab for cutie yeah very good very good stuff i enjoy mm-hmm. it quite a bit yeah his last album was it katsuniga uh i think that's what it is mm-hmm. uh, really excellent yeah but this song it, it really was transcendent in many ways it, it i remember playing it for people who by nature would probably not listen to the monkeys you'd play this to them and they'd like, oh, now this is something different. This is something amazing. And the lyrical work that both you and Mickey do with your vocals is just fantastic. Just, just fantastic. Love it. The the fans love it. To me, it's it's really a high mark. And that's uh, all good to hear. I just want you to know that. Now, another one that's a high mark for you is the birth of an accidental hipster. That was another huge fan favorite. I understand your son Christian Nesmith was involved. Could you share what you liked about that song, <clears throat> what drew you to it, and how Christian became to be part of the project? Well, it was sort of the same thing. Uh, Sandoval and uh, Adam were, you know, in, involved in the production of it. Uh-huh. The production of Hipster didn't quite come together, and it was really hard to get a, uh, a mix on it. And I had suggested that this would be a good song for Mickey and I to sing together. And Mick agreed, and so I put my vocal on, but Adam kept mixing it down and mixing it down into the into the track so that it, it just sounded like another background vocal in, to Mick. And I was saying, no, you don't understand. This needs to be up there like Everly Brothers mixture. Yeah. You know, the two, you can hear both perfectly. Mm-hmm. Um, and through a kind of strange route, it came to be that Christian had it in his studio, got it from the guys at Rhino to put a mix in of some parts 
that were in there and that I had put on. I think they were guitar parts or maybe I don't know where they come from. But anyway, the and then I I said, look, I'm gonna re- I'll put down my part for Mick. I'll put down my part uh, in a different way, and you can mix it and let Mick hear it, and then mix it the way the two of us want it, and then we'll submit it to Rhino and see what they think. And then it, so that's what happened. And Christian did uh, the mixing and the uh, and the and the balancing of the vocals, and and helped us get the vocals on there. He's a he's a first-rate uh, vocalist. Yeah, he's got a great knack for organizing things and putting it all together. Great guy, by the way. Well, I'm sure he'll be glad to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> hear that, Christian? Did you hear that? See? Ken says you're a great guy. <laughs> I love the work he and Cersei do. It's just incredible stuff. Now, for all the well-deserved praise that both me and Magdalena and Bertha and an accidental hipster received, for my money, I Know What I Know was a very moving and haunting ballad. It's just one of those moments on an album that had several of those moments that make you go, wow. And it was very moving and haunting, and you seem to be opening up with this track in a way that is not your standard Michael Nesmith procedure. Where did this song come from? Well, I wrote it, I wrote it in, uh, in High Lonesome, uh, mm. and I wrote it uh, for, it was a, it was a prayer, and um, I was really disappointed with the way it ended up on Good Times. Hmm. But it was not for me to say, you know, Adam and those guys. It was a, it was Kirshner-esque um, um, in in the whole session there. So I just, I let it run. I'd had I'd, I'd fought and won that battle, and you know, I just figured, you know, let these guys do what they want. But uh, there's uh, there's several iterations of it on my site, uh-huh. uh, on the Video Ranch site, which you can see, you can hear, and um, uh, I, I love the song. I mean, I love it because it's a, like I say, it's a prayer, and it's a, uh, and it comes from, uh, the, you know, some from very hard times, very, you know, very sorrowful times. That's one of the things that gives it great, um, what's the word? Uh, just emotion. It just uh-huh. gives you, gives it emotion. And I love how it's open to the interpretation again, right? Like, uh, yeah, it, because this to me is a song can be to a woman or a man but it's also to god or your faith you know right that's exactly that's how it started mm-hmm. as a as a prayer wow well would you mind if i played one of your other versions from that the person can get at video ranch you could play it right now yeah oh i uh, well yeah play it it very good and folks you can get this at video ranch this is from an album called Around the Sun, and the track is called May I Know What I Know, version 2.0, mixed by Joe Chimay. And we will put links in the show notes so that you can directly purchase this version. Here we go, Michael. Ready? Okay. Yeah, that's the one to play.
It's uh, you know, when prayers are are, are strange things because uh-huh. usually they're in the moment of deepest sorrow. Yes. And and uh, um, you know, you seldom think, God, this is such a wonderful day. I'm going to stop right now and take a moment to pray and thank God, uh-huh. <laughs> which is not the sort of thing a mortal would do. Right. And uh, but when you're in a jam, it's like help. Yeah. And uh, and you know how do I how do I get myself out of this? So because there is an approach to deity, it's an approach to the manifestation 
of the uh, might of infinite mind, there is a kind of glorious wonder to it that you hear in early, uh, early theological and, and uh, religious music. And so all the sorrow kind of goes away, and, and you're left with this extraordinary thing. Michael, I I absolutely love that version. To me, there's there's not a bad version of this song. So, oh, that's nice. Thank, well, thanks thank very you. much. I love the song. I mean, it's very very deep and heartfelt for me. You can feel it. Seriously, you can feel it. Now, I know that you retired last year as a touring monkey, but are you still going to do select touring for your solo music? And what about a follow up to Good Times? Would you be interested? Uh, yes, to the above. I mean, uh, you know, I Mick and I talk. You know, Sandoval and I talk. Rhino and I talk. Mm-hmm. You know, the monkeys are forever. And, Absolutely. Um, what's the phrase? It's never say never. No, I was never say forever. That's not it. It's, <laughs> anyway, the point is the monkeys are forever, and and I'm I'm forever, and you're forever. Mm-hmm. So let's just see how it reconvenes, and where, and when, and how. There is no David, Mickey, Mike, and Peter anymore. And it, you know, as time goes on, each one of us are going to fall off in some sort of. Uh, practiced sense of it. Mickey and I talk about going out and playing, and and uh, we do that just you know over dinner. So yeah, it's it, it's it's like, but but in terms of that um, episode, that iteration of what the monkeys were in 2017, 2016, you know that was basically it. I was uh-huh. done. I am done with that. That's all over. Right. That'll never come back because it can't. You know, it's done. I could, we no more than we could come, no more than we could reintroduce the show as a new show in 1965. Right. Well, we look forward to more <clears throat> of the good times, if possible. Yeah. Um, well, it's. I know the wind's blowing around there. I know yeah. Andrew's intri- into it, and mm-hmm. whether there's a real re- anything going on with it, I don't know. Not it, right. I, I'm not pursuing. And and as far as me going out, sure, I could go out, but I don't. You know, I, it, me playing and singing by myself and so forth. That's that's a big mountain to climb. Mm-hmm. And absolutely, I, we'll see. Just wanted to thank you once again for something that you did uh, when the song "Cruising" came out. Mm. Oh man, what a great song! And uh, I remember that video coming out, and it was on uh, Don Kirshner's rock concert, oddly enough, on that huh. uh, TV show. <laughs> but I remember the Monday morning at at school, the next you know the next two days, you were the talk of uh, the art room, right? We were all just like, man, did you see that? Did you hear that song? And then they started playing it on WMMS out of Cleveland. And I had uh, a small career as a DJ every so often, and I always took time to play that that single. That is Hot such dog. a great well, good song. Good for you. I tried to put as many shuckles in your pocket, brother, as I could. Oh, uh, thanks so much. <laughs> but it's it's always a fun song. And I just, just wanted to thank you because it's one of those ones that just sticks with you throughout your life. Lucy and Ramona cruising through the jungles of L.A. Hoping to promote a Rolling 
treats from a kid named Cisco Trying to make connections with their blemish food complexions And just as fate would have it Ended up with Sunset Sam Sam was selling watches from a suitcase on a TV tray And Lucy and Ramona were trying to figure out if he was gay The three of them were standing, staring at each other When the light behind their eyes blew each other's cover The ancient code was branded And each of them was handed a ticket to their kingdom Cause they saw their brother Sunset Sam So we look forward to maybe more good times and more Infinite Tuesdays. Can you tell folks where they can purchase Infinite Tuesday and get it signed from Video Range? Because in case anybody does not realize, you can get a lot of stuff signed from the man on the other end of this call. Yeah, well, anything you buy from Video Ranch is uh, is a candidate and is uh, is possible to get it signed by me. Uh, I try to sign everything everybody buys. That gets a little hard with T-shirts. Right, but, right. Uh, in terms of books and records and so forth, and all my works are available at Video Ranch. Uh, it's they're they're not only available at Video Ranch. There's a good presence on Amazon and uh -huh. a good presence at uh, a lot of the online stores for uh, 
stuff and Rhino and and uh, iTunes and YouTube and all those people have have a presence. But if you if you're looking for my works, just put it Michael Nesmith into the search string at Google or whatever search engine you use. Go to Video Ranch, and you'll you'll get a splash screen that'll take you to everything. I mean, there's nothing there's nothing that's available that's not at Video Ranch. Right. And if you buy it from me, uh, I'm uh, I'm happy to sign it for you if I can and if it's signable. Which is absolutely fantastic. That's that's a great connection right there. Uh, I I can think of no better reason than to go to VideoRanch.com. So we want to send people there. And Super. Michael, this is our 100th episode of Zilch. It's a podcast about a TV show about a band. Great. We're celebrating our 100th episode. Have you ever considered doing a Video Ranch podcast? Cause I sure. Think well, that's that's the way Video Ranch started. It yeah. started as a as a as <clears throat> basically a, the carrier for the HTML uh, iterations of the Long Sandy Hair of Neptune Zamora. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But I really think you would do well in the podcast uh, field. You, just, you do? Yeah, well, <laughs> you, you, you and I, Michael, we, we are pontificators, if nothing else. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to thank you for being here on our 100th episode. My pleasure. Thanks for including me. And uh, away in a hoe away our, in a hoe. Uh, fellow monkey ears. <laughs> Well, thank you for making a lot of people smile today, and uh, check out Infinite Tuesday. Do you think it could ever be a movie, and do you, do you have any ideas who you would want to play you? Oh, I don't know, Ken. That's, that's a whole have to be podcast, someone ruggedly good-looking, you know, <laughs> right? <laughs> Full of charm. Your silence is speaking for itself. There's a showstopper there. Yep. Nice talking with you. All right. God bless you. Thank you for everything. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
this is Mickey Dolenz of the Monkees. Happy birthday, Zilch. Hi, this is Peter Tork, and you're listening to Zilch. It's a Monkees podcast. This is Andrew Sandoval, and you're listening to Zilch, a Monkees podcast. Hi, this is John Hughes from Rhino, and you're listening to Zilch, a Monkees podcast. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Look right hey, shut up. I'm talking. <laughs> Who are you? Oh, I'll be John. And I'm Wayne. I'm Wayne Avers, and this is John, John Billings. Billings of the Mickey Dolan's Band and the Monkees, but we wanted to send a shout-out to Ken and the Zilt Show. This is the 100th show. Wow. 100. Congratulations. Keep uh, running long. Keep running. We'll see you guys. Hi, this is Dave Alexander, and hashtag induct the monkeys. Hi, it's Emily Dolenz, and you're listening to Zilch, a Monkeys podcast. Hi, this is Coco Dolenz, and you are listening to the Zilch Monkeys podcast. Hey, it's Rich Dart, and I just want to wish Zilch a happy 100th episode. Hope there's 100 more. When are you going to have me back on? Hi, this is Jim Frawley, and you are listening to Zilch, a Monkeys podcast. As we said earlier... Nez will be appearing at Chiller Theater from October 27th to the 29th at the Hilton Parsippany in Parsippany, New Jersey. If you cannot make it, you can still get an 8x10 signed or even something of your own signed. Simply go to Jody Ritson's web store at monkeysmeetandgreets.com for instructions. She will allow items to be sent to her directly, she will get them signed, and will include a picture and a hologram of authenticity. Jody will even pay the insurance to get the items back to you. But... She can only accept 50 more items or so, so don't delay. Items will be signed in person by Michael Nesmith at Chiller and sent back the following week. We'd like to thank Jody Ritson for all she's done to help make this interview happen. We hope that you enjoyed our 100th episode of Zilch. We would like to thank everybody from the Monkees, Davy Jones, Peter Tork, Mickey Dolans, and Michael Nesmith. Thank you. To Bob and Bert and to everybody who is behind the scenes and who made the TV show what it was. To all the folks that helped make the music what it was as well. Thanks to all the people that are keeping the show on the road. Whether it be the live experience or on Blu-ray or on the air somewhere. We'd like to thank the Monkees bands past and present. Everybody that's been part of the Monkees traveling road show. To everybody in Mickey's touring band. Coco Dolans, Dave Alexander, John Billings and his family, Rich Dart, Wayne Avers, we love you all. Thank you all, everyone who's in that touring band, thank you for being part of this show. And they've been the Monkees backing band as well. We especially want to thank everyone over at Rhino, at Warner. Special thanks to John Hughes for all you've done for us as Monkees fans. And for permission to play the songs off Good Times on this episode. To Andrew Sandoval to everybody who's ever been on this show or helped write it or helped take pictures like Sherry Hansen to to help keep things going as far as graphics and if it sounds like I'm a little touched up or a little touched it's because I am sometimes a dream that happens to you is one that you didn't even realize you wanted to come true but everyone out there we've all made zilch come true every listener every person that shares the show you are part of this we'd like to thank not only the four monkeys but their families as well we'd also like to thank the staff here at zilch you've all lent your voices your time and your talents you know who you are and this show would not be possible without you thank you for everything i have a feeling that this next year is going to be a lot of fun i want to thank you for being here thank you for taking some time and monkeying around with us surprise used to scare me but as of late i've really learned to enjoy 
the surprises that the universe is bringing us. And as Mike said, it's going to go on and it's eternal. We're always going to go on. So 100 down, here's to the next 100. We'll see you on the next episode of your podcast full of monkeys, Zilch. And that's our show. Zilch is an online nonprofit monkeys audio fanzine made by fans for fans. Any samples of music or interviews heard remain property of their owners. We are not related to the monkeys or any of their members past or present. We are not affiliated with Rhino or Ray Burke. If you hear anything you like from the band, go on Amazon or iTunes and buy it. If you enjoyed the show, like us on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm your announcer, Chelsea Epstein, saying always take some time to monkey around. Thank <laughs> you.